to the mixtape with Scott. I'm your host, Scott Cunningham. Uh, this week we have a guest on the show that is named uh, Wilbert Van Wilbert Vanderklau. He's an economic research advisor on household and public policy research at the New York Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, Dr. Vanderklau uh, is an interesting part of the causal inference story. He did early work on the regression discontinuity design um, that sort of was, you know, one of these first movers along with like Sandy Black and um, uh, Josh Angris in the econ. Um, and so it was a really great opportunity to talk to him, talk about his career, uh, talk about some of his, uh, how he got from the, uh, from, from, from Erasmus University as a college student and then got to Brown University. And then from there ended up at NYU and North Carolina and finally left academia to go to the Fed. Um, we learned about some of his research and as well as some of his classmates. And um, I hope you enjoy this uh, uh, interview. Thanks so much for turning in. Bye. All right. Well, it's my pleasure to have with me um, uh, an economist on the podcast that I've uh, followed their work for a long time, but I've never gotten to actually meet them before. Uh, Dr. Vanderklaw, thank you for being on the, the podcast. Great to be on it. Okay, well, will you tell, for the sake of the, the listener, tell us your entire name and where you're currently employed and what your job title is? So my name is Wilbert Vanderklaw, and I'm an economic policy advisor at the New York Fed. Okay, great. Awesome. This will be the first time we've spoken with an economist that uh, worked in the Fed. I'm looking forward to this. So, all right, but before we get started, uh, would you mind telling me, um, uh, as for an icebreaker, would you mind telling me a, a vacation that you took as a kid that, uh, you know, you still think about it from time to time? It may not be your favorite, but it still pops in your head every now and then. Uh, boy, uh, as, as a kid, you know, we, my parents were travelers. They really like going on vacation. So there's a lot there to think of. Uh, I guess one that, that, um, stuck in my mind is one, uh, when I was around 14, 15, um, we went on vacation, uh, to the U S mm. uh, to Albuquerque, New Mexico. And my, my mom, um, so I grew up in the Netherlands, but, you know, my mom had a, a pen pal uh, in the U.S. In, in Albuquerque. And so one summer we went, the whole family went on vacation uh, to Albuquerque. So we spent three weeks there. And then after that, a weekend around New York City. Uh, but those three weeks were really remarkable because, you know, first of all, you know, it's such a striking place to visit. Mm. Uh, and I remember... You know, it's like the desert, but then in the, in the evening you get this rain and the smell of it. And um, I think we went on trips to like Santa Fe, El Paso, places like that. And it, it was just an awesome trip. That part of the country is beautiful. too. I've, I only recently have started going there on road trips, but it is gorgeous. <laughs> um, okay, that's awesome. So you said you so you said you grew up in the Netherlands. Yes. Okay. Where Where in the Netherlands was it? Um, a town, a small town, about a mile from the North Sea coast, and it's about equally distance from Amsterdam and Rotterdam. So it's it's close to the Hague. Okay, uh, it's in an area. It's known for the tulips. You know, it's uh, the bulb area. Yeah, 
there's a lot of farmland and uh, in season it looks beautiful there's yeah. like you know it's flowers all over uh, okay yep well so what did your parents do for a living uh, my dad was a builder a contractor so he built a lot of uh, standalone houses in the in the area yeah. and my mom was the bookkeeper and uh, homemaker oh okay she was the bookkeeper for his like his company his firm, yeah oh okay 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 great so so your family had I'm assuming kind of, is it right your family and your grandparents and your great-grandparents they'd all been from that area for a long long time they all lived in the same area mm -hmm. uh, I think if by my whole extended family everybody lives in that family in that area uh, at that point uh, except for one aunt who moved to Canada when I was little mm. uh, but yeah it's a very you know uh, yeah everybody <laughs> and most of them still live there yeah yeah okay okay well so when you were like maybe 10 or 11 years old and it was a Saturday uh you know during the year what could I have found you doing what would you have been doing on a typical a random Saturday boy uh yeah, I guess it depends on the season. Like in season, I'll be working. Uh, you know, did some work on the ball fields. I mean, a lot of people there in season. You know, do you do that kind of work? Yeah. Um, I would go fishing, uh, hang out with friends. Uh, yeah, just locally. Okay. How big was this town? Um, about I would say fifteen thousand. It's okay. not like really small but it yeah. is really kind of a farm farming community mm. um, and as i said it's close to the to the north sea coast so in season the beaches are you know there's a lot of tourists mm -hmm. um but um yeah it's um you know it's a very pretty area well so what did you want to be when you were growing up if you would you know, maybe like early high school. What did you think you wanted to be? Early high school, I think uh, I was interested in becoming a professor. <laughs> oh, yeah? I know it was very strange, but I always, I when, when I was asked, like, what do you want to be? You know, I think I always said either professor or diplomat. Oh. How do you even have those ideas in your head? I don't know. It's, uh, I think the traveling got me thinking about, you know, being a diplomat and, um, uh, Professor, I, I guess, you know, I was doing well in my studies and mm. uh, I felt like that would be an interesting thing to do. Uh, not really knowing much about it when I was, you know, that age, but uh, yeah, just something that uh, I, I guess that the, what was kind of different about that view was that, you know, I was expected, I guess, to follow my dad and uh, take over the company. Oh. Uh, but, and the, but I never felt like, that was my interest. So, you know, it's <laughs> right. So I just came up with those two things. Right, 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 right. Uh, okay. Okay. Well, so well, how big was your high school then? Um, my high, well, so I didn't go to the high school in the, in the village. I went to the high school in, uh, in Leiden, which is about 10 miles Mm. Uh, from where from where I lived, so you know I would go there by bike, and uh, it was I think it was maybe fifteen hundred students, something like that. Mm. That was the size, and it attracted kids from the whole area. 
Mm. Um, so there were a couple of kids, you know, from uh, you know from my town, mm. and we would often bike together. Um, but then there are kids from you know other rural areas as well as you know people from Leiden itself. Yeah, yeah. And it was an interesting school. Uh, it was a Franciscan school, so there were still some uh, monks uh, teaching mm -hmm. uh, in their robes, and they had a chapel, and um, but they were very progressive. Uh, mm. were, yeah, actually, I think they were Franciscans. Yeah, they were Franciscans. Mm. Hmm. But Wait. it was a good school. So this was a Catholic school that you were attending? Yes. School? It was a big yeah. Catholic school? Huh. Yeah. So you what? It was like some more selective Catholic, like college prep school or something like that? Well, all the schools are kind of religious. Uh, yeah. in my area. So in, in town, uh, you know, like elementary school was either Catholic or Protestant school. Yeah. And in the area, yeah, there were still, that was kind of a legacy at that at the time, most schools still had a religious affiliation. Okay. Okay. So it didn't really mean that much. In most schools, it didn't mean anything really. Yeah. But at, at the school I went to, which is called Bonaventura in, in Leiden, there, you know, they still had, uh, you know, the chapels and some of the monks. Right. And the, right. Right. Yeah, right. But it was like a good place. Well, so you end up at Erasmus. So what, what were all the. When you were graduating high school, what what was your horizon like? Were you sort of thinking, I could go, I have all these places I might want to go, or was you sort were you sort of dialed in to go to a like I don't really know a lot about the universities in the Netherlands. So this yeah, the, the system is different in that you have to choose a major, really kind of a you know, uh, and yeah, a college major when you're like 17. Mm. And and that's the courses you take. Yeah. Beginning. And so I was interested in architecture. Mm. Uh, so I went and then I was also interested in economics and math. Oh, those okay. Are, those are the kind of the things I was good at. And, yeah. and I thought math by itself might be a little bit too dry and I wanted something more applied. So then I learned there was something called econometrics. And really? so... In oh, yeah, high actually, school, you learned about econometrics. I, well, I I heard that was such a major uh, oh. when you go to university, and so I thought, okay, let let's let's check that out. So basically, I I narrowed it down to two choices: mm -hmm. econometrics or uh, architecture. And so I went to the open house in both. Uh, the one was in Delft, uh, a town you know not that far, and then. The, and then in econometrics, I went to Erasmus. Yeah. Uh, for the open house, and there was, you know, I was living equally distant between Amsterdam and Rotterdam, and they both have econometrics. But Rotterdam has, you know, of course, the history of Tinbergen, and right. um, it had a whole, you know, good reputation in in uh, in econometrics. Yeah. Anyway, that the open house made all the difference because. You know, the housing market at that time, construction was not really great. And so when I went to the open house in Delft, they were saying, you know, things do, don't look very good. And mm. so some job wise and, and my dad had come along and he said, well, you know, it doesn't sound that great. And then instead, econometrics, that was an area where mm. you basically had a guaranteed job once you're, you know, you're done. It, with econometrics? Yes. What kind of jobs were available for somebody well, made in econometrics? Yeah, it's 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 basically it's a very rigorous training in statistics. 
economics and some economics, and then there were two streams. One, uh, you go into industry, you go corporate, yeah, and there's a big demand there for econometricians uh. Uh, for their skills, and then the other stream was academic, and um, and so so that, yeah, I ended up going to uh, to Erasmus, and and I still I remember uh, the first week. Um, it, it it was a at that time I don't know if it still is, but it was a pretty big program in that. There were a hundred of us incoming, uh, doing econometrics as a major. Uh, but it was a very tough program. So on the, on the first day, I remember I was sitting you know, in between two people and and they told us, well, look at the neighbor next to you on, on either side. Only one of you will be ne- will be left over after you know, two years. Because they knew that the drop, you know, the dropout rate was very, you know, very, very big. So oh. Uh, and it was a four-year program, so they said, "Yeah, in the end, we'll only be one of three left." And then um, it it turned out that both those uh, people next to me became my friends, and and we all we all made it. Uh, but yeah, one the one guy uh, sitting on, on one side was was Guido Imbens. Really? Yeah. <laughs> And uh, so, yeah, we became good friends, and uh, we we survived that program. It 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 was very interesting. It it started off a lot of math and statistics, and then you know you start doing econometrics courses. Um, not so much economics, except for you know the modeling parts. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, but it it was it was tough. Wow. Uh, Erasmus has always had this this econometrics yeah. major like that. Yes. Wow. So yeah. how would you describe to me from America being, you know, younger and having no, I, we don't have an econometrics major at Baylor. So what right. kind of coursework is this like philosophically and every, what's different? Cause this is before would, this causal inference stuff. Uh, well, so, you know, the, I would say in the beginning, it's very similar to statistics. Yeah. So do a lot of statistics. And then, you know, math, uh, you know, the, the usual kind of, we did a lot of linear algebra. Mm. Uh, I mean, all the kind of things that we advise people to take uh, when they go to grad school. Yeah. But then, you and know, a, the courses, yeah. An econometrics major is probably definitely preparing you for graduate school. Oh, whereas, yeah. Whereas an econ major, you could easily imagine taking no math in econ major, but that's, impossible in an econometrics major right yeah yeah no that's right and the fallback i mean all these people that dropped out they all went to economics yeah because it was you know it it was not as difficult and um and you know i i think that i almost felt like they they made it uh extra difficult just Mm. i don't know why but um but you know we benefited from that because we learned a lot yeah i bet you know the, of course, there were the big models. You know, econometric models. There was like the Rotterdam model. You know, all the systems of you know demand. Um, we did. I remember a course on queuing theory, uh, which I never ended up u- using any of that stuff. But um, still, it was interesting. It, you know, it's like what's the optimal way of queuing in supermarkets yeah. and all with all oh, yeah. you know, statistics and everything yeah. around that. Um, and then we had a Fortran course. Of course, you know this was old style, so we had these cards that we uh, yep. uh, 
you know, we had to fill in and, um, and um, yeah, so there, there was, it was an interesting, uh, an interesting experience. Mm, and, yeah, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> huh. So you end up doing this master. So you already were pretty much committed to becoming a professor, but this experience with econometrics seems to, you know, this story with you and yeah. him, it's both go to Hull, right? Is that, because I- Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting that. story. Yeah, How it's- that happening? So after, after the third year, we're in the third year, uh, I read about this exchange program that Rotterdam yeah. had with, uh, with the University of Hull. Yeah. And, you know, we knew there was a good econometrician there, Tony Lancaster, and- the idea sounded very interesting just to spend a year in England and yeah. you know, meeting him and, you know, taking some courses there. And so I was trying to convince my friends, you know, to go along and uh, because there were, there were several openings and Gita was the only one who was interested. Uh, so we decided to do it. And, um, and that's how we ended up there. And then it turned out to be a really lively place. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot of people coming through uh, from the U.S. Uh, there are, you know, some really good economists there that we ended up working with uh, besides Tony. You know, so Tony Lancaster, Peter Dalton, mm -hmm. Jerry McPeace, uh, Alessandro Signo. There, there's a whole, it was a very lively place. And, and we somehow, uh, you know, kind of thrived in that environment. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we were, it, we were challenged to, um, you know, to speak our minds and ask questions, and it it was we had a lot of fun actually. It was uh, oh, huh. So you and Imbens were pretty tight then. Y'all were close friends, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Since you know that first day in Rotterdam, since eight, you know, we were we both just turned eighteen. So ever since then, we've known each other very well. And so Tony Lancaster leaves for Brown. And Imbens had told me he goes with Tony Lan. Now I'm realizing Tony Lancaster asks both of y'all to come with him. Yeah. So yeah. So that that's that's. So we did the masters at at uh, at Hull, and then uh, I mean I always hoped to go to America to you know for grad school. Yeah. Uh, but then Tony suddenly tells us uh, that he's planning to move. He was part of that brain drain. A lot of people in England you know, successful uh, professor, quite a few economists, they, they left for for the US. Mm. And so Tony told us about this place called Brown University. And, you know, we hadn't done any research at that point mm. uh, because we were, you know, planning to go back to Holland and then apply. And so suddenly we're like, okay, we should maybe apply now. And so, we both frantically like had to take the GRE and do all these, you know, uh, you know, applications. Uh, but then it just, it just made sense for us to just go to Brown. I mean, mm. first we found out it's a very good place and there were some really good people there. And, um, and then of course we knew Tony, so it, it was almost natural for us to follow. And uh, so that's what we did. Mm. So you get to Brown, you know, the thing, that I notice in your Vita that's, I think probably I knew of your work on, because of my kind of obsession with causal inference, I, I've been very familiar with several of the RD papers that you wrote. Mm -hmm. 
But it's a lot clearer when I look at your Vita, you're, it almost seems like you're primarily a labor economist mainly, right? Yes. That would be the right way to talk about it. You're not, the, yes. you make these classical contributions to econometrics, but you can tell you're very interested in labor supply and things like that. Yes. Is that yeah, so that, that, yeah, that actually started in Rotterdam. Oh. Uh, I took a course there. There was a Belgian economist called Jules Tewes, and he, he had, he got his PhD at UBC, at British Columbia, and, and so... And he invited in these economists like Glenn Kane and Art Goldberger, you know, an yeah. and, and so, and then at, uh, at Hull, there were a lot of applied micro labor people there. Mm. So there we started estimating, of course, Tony was doing all the stuff on duration analysis, you know, uh, transition data. So, um, and, and, but then a lot of people were doing discrete choice models. And of course, this was all the time about, you know, selection bias, uh, right? All the human stuff, and so I got really into that. Uh, you know, estimating these models, and uh, yeah. and then at Brown was Robert Moffat. So I ended up oh. working actually more with Robert uh, than with Tony in the end, because huh. uh, Robert also, of course, you know, top labor economist, but also interested in in the structural, you know, structural modeling, right? And you know, at that time. It was the transition from going from static models, discrete choice models, to dynamic discrete choice models with forward-looking behavior. So mm. dynamic programming models. And so I was very interested in that. And so mm. that's that's kind of what I did for my thesis at um, you know at at, uh, at Brown. Is it Moffat and, that's and, your advisor? Yeah, both Moffat and, and Lancaster. Lancaster also was more interested in structural stuff. He had done interesting work uh, on uh, reservation wages, job search models oh. earlier, uh, you know, before all the duration stuff. So, uh, so it was all, you know, a lot of people around me were kind of interested in, in labor economics. And, and uh, I, I, so I became that as well. Wow. Wow. So, so, so you graduate. What, so what was your job market paper about? It was about you know female labor supply and marriage yeah. and marriage decisions, marriage and divorce. So it was really looking at the dynamics, the interactions between that, and and just modeling those decisions jointly. Mm. Um, yeah. Oh, so it was the structural style work that you were very doing. structural. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're so. So when is it, okay, I don't want to get, I do want to ask this, but I'll first ask this. So, so you graduate and mm -hmm. you go to New York, you end up at NYU. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what year is that? I don't That's have in 91. 91. Okay. So do you end up, because of your later econometrica, that's like using this potential outcomes notation Mm -hmm. Is that something that you're picking up at Brown? Are you picking up this like potential outcomes no. language at all? At Brown, it was no, it wasn't there yet. Uh, but I did get very interested in in natural experiments. Yeah. Um, when does that first start? I saw the '95 article on conscription, but is that the first time? Yeah. The the first that was my first paper where it was yeah it was more kind of an IV type thing. Um, so I got interested in it even before, even though I was doing structural work. Yeah. Uh, when Hido obviously got interested in that, he was taking courses at, at Harvard uh, while at Brown. 
And so, but I was also interested in the stuff, uh, you know, Angus and Kruger, that paper, uh, you know, quarter of, quarter of birth. Yeah. And then Angus and Levy on uh, class size, the Maimonides rule. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, papers like that, of course, you know, they, uh, or the discontinuities, I mean, the, the minimum wage stuff. Yeah. So yeah. that was, that was all happening at that time. Yeah. Uh, so I was definitely interested in that as well, because, you know, there obviously is the question where you have, you know, you estimate structural models, but where does identification come from? And, you know, that's kind of one thing these papers raised. Uh, you know, you have to think about exogeneity, exclusion, you know, it, it sharpened all those ideas about yeah. uh, what you need for identification. Right, right, right. Well, wait a second. So, so you're like kind of in my mind, you know, I, I have this like view of people that kind of sort mm -hmm. reduced form or structural. But would that's that doesn't sound like necessarily what because you know you've got this like large body of skills that comes from your your structural and you're picking up this like reduced form approach. Did you sort of did, did you ever feel like I've got to be one, you know I am one or the other or was it just like you just worked on whatever you wanted to work on and it, it didn't necessarily require having some like specialized set of skills. Um, no, I, I, I just, I found both of them very interesting. I, I never felt like one was right and the other one was wrong. I always felt they're actually both very interesting. And mm. to me, my ideal research project would be to use both of them. Uh, so, you know, let's say you run an experiment, randomized experiment. So you have really good, you know, source of variation to exploit. Then you want to also use some structure to help interpret the results mm. uh, and, you know, look at multiple outcomes together, not, you know, which models kind of force you to do. You're thinking more about mechanisms and multiple outcomes. Well, in causal inference, usually you have like a, you know, a single outcome variable and you have a, you know, an intervention that you, you know, the, the effect you want to estimate often. So I, I always felt like, they're, you know, both very useful. Yeah. And maybe in combination, it's maybe the strongest, you know, yeah. uh, possibility. But so I was working both on uh, structural stuff. And of course, NYU is known for structural work. Uh, Chris Flynn and Ken Wolpen were there. Mm. Uh, and uh, later on, Mike Keane, who uh, he was also uh, a student from Brown from, from those days. He was ahead of us, but he was uh, close, you know, we overlapped by a year, I think. Uh, so it was a very structural place at NYU, but, you know, I was interested in in uh, in this causal inference work as well. And so that that's how actually I got into, uh, you know, I was, I had already done this paper with, with Hido on the, Using uh, basically variation, variation coming from lotteries in in yeah. the Netherlands in, in in military drafts. Yeah. So we looked at the effect of the draft on earnings later on, like serving a year and a half in the in the military. Yeah. Um, so I I done that, but then um, and I got the, the then I got into regression discontinuity uh, designs, and that that was 
by accident, I was, so this is in, I would say 1995 or so. Oh. And uh, the dean at NYU had come to the economics department and said, we have all this data on enrollments and, you know, people who, you know, we offer financial aid and, you know, kind of people replied. And then we tried to figure out how to optimally allocate financial aid offers uh, to people who have been admitted to NYU. Basically, they wanted to maximize yield, oh. uh, but they wanted to do it in a way where they get the right mix of people. And But but I got interested in that that question because when I first thought about it, it's like, okay, the best students, like, because a lot of it is merit aid. So you probably give more to the merit, you know, to, to the really good students, but they are not coming to NYU. They end up at Harvard and other places. So, so if you run that regression, you're probably going to get a negative effect. So right. I asked, them, so what have you been doing so far? And they said, well, we have consultants and they tell us, you know, they tell us what to do. And so I got very interested in like, okay, what are the consultants doing? Because this is a very tough causal yep. question. Yep. And so I decided that, you know, I, uh, I would like to look at the data and they asked for an RA. So they gave me some funds for an RA. And when I looked at the data, it, I, found what, I found out what they were doing. They, they were grouping people based on their GPA and SAT scores. Mm. And there were these cutoffs. And so, and then they were assigning these amounts of money to, you know, based on which category you fell into, which group you fell into. Yeah. And so when you plotted that in the data, you see these big jumps, you know, at these cutoffs. Mm. And so that made me think like, okay, this is like, it's like an, you know, when you look at the, near the cutoff, it's like, it's like random. It's like a, it's like random assignment. I mean, there is a similarity there. Nobody's working on RD at this time. Nobody, nobody. But you didn't even have anybody well, to talk to about it. No. Um, well, I know there's I mean, that Ingerson Levy paper, but this seems a little more. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, th th exactly. There, I think people were using it, but they didn't realize it was what they were doing that their design, the case that we're looking at was a, a regression discontinuity design. Like Angerst and Levy, definitely, that's right. There's like a sharp cutoff when you when you hit a certain number of students, you add another class and you get this discontinuity. Yeah. Um, and, you know, border discontinuity, maybe not, so, but quarter of birth is very much also so. There's a, in each state, there's a birthday cutoff mm -hmm. and, it's really an RD, but they implemented it as an IV. But the, you know, so I recognize that that okay, you this recognize is like, that people were using IV. You could tell there was something about it that you could tell that you didn't feel like it was instrumental variables. It was something else. Um. No, I, I, well, I felt I uh, when I first saw it, it, it definitely reminded me of those papers. And then right. the more I dug into it and realized that this was like a regression discontinuity design, mm. I realized that that's the one they, you know, that also applied to their models, you know, the, mm. to their, their uh, uh, you know, the causal questions that they were trying to answer. Mm. And, but the way I, I, so I remember I was starting to look for, uh, you know, was there anything like this on like these discontinuities and, 
Hido had given a talk at NYU at some point, and I, I was I was telling him about this, and he said he didn't know, but he said you should look at this um, uh, Campbell paper. Yeah. Uh, um, a book. Sorry, it was a book. Uh, Alfred Campbell and Cook. Yeah, Cook and Campbell. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, so I looked at that, and they had all these quasi-experimental designs, and that's right. And then uh, that's what this regression discontinuity design was there. But then, then really worked it out. I mean, the intuition was there. They talked a little bit about this randomization at the cutoff, uh, but then they focused a lot on extrapolating. Right. And there, it was all functional form. Yes. And you know, they they didn't really at that time because that dates from the 60s right that right. earlier work in education uh, psychology basically it dates from the 60s and so everything was parametric they, they didn't have non-parametrics then yeah and um and so you know but that but those papers were useful for me because then i could try to kind of figure out uh you know what was going on and then uh, around that time, I was going on sabbatical, and I was spending some time at Penn. And, you know, that's how I met uh, Petra Todd and Jin Han, and we started talking. And we both, you know, the three of us had the same view about, uh, you know, because of this, about those papers, uh, Angus and Lavi and so on, that those are not really IV because uh, we, you know, if you think about RD at the running variable, the whole problem that you're facing there is that you're worried that this running variable is correlated with potential outcomes, right? If it wasn't, then you have already, it's like a lottery, then you already have yeah. randomization and you can, you don't even, you know, have to restrict yourself to the color. You could, you could just uh, use it as a just random variation in assignment. Yeah. Um, so any function of that running variable wouldn't really make a lot of sense as an instrument of variable, but it becomes like a randomized assignment when you take it to the limit, mm. uh, when you approach from both sides. And so I always felt like, or, you know, it had that, it was like IV in a limit. That's the way I saw it. Mm. Mm. And so you and Petra and Han were just sort of sitting around. Uh, Han said that, Angers had come and presented that Maimonides paper and mm -hmm. and he had a an yeah. issue with it and y'all started talking. So how what do you remember? How how does this paper get born? Yeah, well, I, I already had my paper, right? The, the, this you had this stuff. paper that gets published in IER? It's, yeah, it gets paper, it gets published later. The, everything took a long time in those days. Mm. And you know, and also nobody knew what to make of it. Right. I had this paper on regression discontinuity, uh, and I sent it to a journal, a top journal, and it got back in a couple of weeks. And uh, they they couldn't they didn't know what to make of it. Uh, and um, and then later on, I talked to uh, you know Josh Angrist and Alan Kruger, and they were always very supportive. Mm. So they're trying to also explain to me that you know that. Of course, you know, people might have trouble trying to understand what this is about and mm. kind of a new thing. And um, and then I think there were also perceptions out there uh, that this was a very special case, that there were these discontinuities. Mm. Uh, and I must admit, even I thought, 
you know, yes, I, I knew there were going to be discontinuities in life. I mean, people, you know, they draw thresholds, right, for assignments. Yeah. Uh, they often do like in groups or just oh, like. Right. Yeah. yeah. You, you saw it as like, yeah, this is going to be everywhere. Yeah, it's going to. Well, they, I, I didn't think it was that, you know, it, it, that it was so widespread. I didn't realize. Right. And I think a lot of people thought it was much less applicable than it turned out to be. So initially right. when I was doing it, a lot of people thought, oh, it was kind of cute, but they, they didn't think it was really that applicable. Yeah. That's the perception I got. Right. Uh, but so I, I had that paper and then I started to talk with Eugene and Petra and because we really wanted to nail down identification because that had never been done in that, in that literature. Mm. And so I worked on that. And of course, you know, all the late stuff was, was, happening at that time and it applied you know perfectly to this mm. uh, so you know that's how the paper came about uh, we wow. had a couple of you know we had some iterations it was just you know just meeting the right people we all had the similar ideas about it from the beginning and um, it was very productive it was really you know when did you notice it was being so impactful or like when did you notice that you're like, man, I, I've really contributed with these two papers to something that's taken off. Did you notice it pretty quickly or what? Uh, well, I, I started feeling like this was, this was something, you know, useful when I, I gave a talk at MIT and I gave a talk at Princeton and I started getting feedback. People clearly, you know, appreciated this. And then I started seeing other applications. And then also the people who, like even Sandy Black, right? That paper um, originally where you also look at house prices and you related yeah. to both your schooling on, on borders, you know, either side of the street. When you then, you know, all of these then became clear that these were a kind of like regression discontinuities. And, and then I was working on some other applications and, and then I started seeing more and more applications. I know David Carr got very interested in it and David Lee and lots of other people started working on it. And then uh, we had a um, conference. I think David Carr organized a conference that became like a special issue of the Journal of Econometrics. Mm. And there were a lot of really good people there. And so that's when it really started taking off. But I, I never thought that, you know, maybe another four or five years later, when you looked on, on the people on the job market, it was like everybody <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's really cool. That's a neat story. So, so you, but then, okay, so th this decision in 06 to leave Chapel Hill, you're a full professor at UNC Chapel Hill to go to the Fed. I, I'm curious, what prompted you to make a move like that? Um, again, kind of a random, a random thing. Um, I had sabbatical and I came to the Fed. And while we were at the Fed, first of all, my wife and I, we kind of realized how much we missed the city. Yeah. Um, uh, but then also the environment at the Fed was really uh, not what I expected. Uh, there were already quite a few micro people, uh, applied micro people. And... Um, it was a very stimulating environment, um, lots of resources. And while I was here, I was very much, this is kind of, again, my structural background. I was, I've always been interested in subjective expectations. Like when we write down these models 
and we make assumptions how people form expectations, you know, those are very strong assumptions. And, and so the question is, why don't we collect that kind of data? And Chuck Mansky had been starting doing this, and I thought that work was really interesting and very important. So while I was here as a visitor, I wrote a proposal. I drafted a proposal and then worked with people here, uh, which was to, uh, the proposal was to do research on, uh, you know, collecting expectations data. Of course, the Fed in particular is interested in inflation expectations, but right. it was always my idea that if we pull this off, we we're going to ask about lots of stuff about the labor market and housing market and lots of other things. And so, but to my surprise, you know, they said, why don't we do this? You were and, there on sabbatical. And yeah. in your head, you're already thinking about expectations because of earlier stuff. But you start having conversations with senior people at the Fed yes. about this, and they they you're surprised by how interested they are. Yes, well, yes, you know, we have Joe Tracy, of course, he's an applied micro labor the guy who was the head of research. Simon Potter, a uh, group of really smart people. Tim Geithner was the president. And uh, I said, well, let's, let's do this. And then subsequently, you know, Bill Dudley was the president after that, and currently John Williams, they all have been extremely supportive of this kind of work. Mm -hmm. uh, so we started this survey, but we did that only after a six year of experimentation. Uh, and we did all of that testing at the beginning, a question wording, uh, how do you collect these probabilistic expectations? What's the best way of doing it? We work with behavioral psychologists on like, can you really ask people about inflation? And there, we tried lots of different ways of doing that. So we learned a huge amount. And then, you know, at the same time, we have the financial crisis happening. And Geithner says, like, how come we didn't see this coming? How, did, how come we didn't know that people were in so much mortgage debt? We need more data. And so they asked me to... Uh, look into credit report data. So I pulled in a colleague, Dong uh, Moon Lee here at the Fed, and we designed this uh, sampling frame uh, to get credit report data. And now we have this database and we have this quarterly report of household debt and credit. Yeah. That uh, is also very impactful. And um, and that we created that all, you know, because the, the Fed has those resources. Wow. And so it's it's really a great place to work because you know th these resources, the data, uh, the colleagues are fantastic. The RAs are really great. So I felt like, well, why would I go back? I mean, this is the, you know, uh, I, it it was a, maybe a bit of a risk, but I I felt like I would never have that opportunity as a professor, right? Imagine the NSF grants you would need year yeah. after year, you know, to run an expensive survey. Yeah, uh, or to buy these credit report data yep. uh, in a quarterly frequency. And, you know, we have credit report data for you know twenty five million people every you know every quarter. Mm. So that you know, and this is obviously great for research. Mm. And uh, so that's the other thing at the Fed: you get exposed to more areas, right? Um, you know, beyond just labor economics. So I got yeah. interested in household finance, um, urban economics a little bit, and uh, yeah, you kind of spread your, you know, of course, inflation expectations. Uh, we do a lot of policy work with that, um, which, you know, which is very useful too for you know, how we make the decisions here. So, yeah, I think all, all together, 
it it's I felt it like uh, I can always go to back you know go back to academics if I wanted to. I mean I'm, I missed the teaching a little bit of the graduate students, but then we have these RAs that go off to graduate school graduate school here and and they are so good. Mm. Uh, so we get kind of the same experience. Yeah. Uh, and um, were and then, you surprised that you had these skills? Doing yeah, things, uh, creating a, a a giant survey and things like that that you don't necessarily get that training in graduate school. That's true. Um, I did. I mean, I was always interested in in uh, surveys, and when I I spent a sabbatical, it's like one semester at the University of Essex in England, and I was visiting an institute there that does the surveys in uh, many of the big surveys in England, and I learned a lot there. And actually, I, I presented my uh, very early draft of the RD paper there. And mm -hmm. the, the same thing there. They thought, you know, they thought it was interesting, but they couldn't, couldn't make sense yeah. of whether this would be important or not. Or, uh, But they were really good at doing surveys. So I got a real good you know, appreciation of that, of, of um, you know, doing that kind of work. And, and sure, you know, we... You know, it was a bit of a risk and, uh, you know, the Fed took a bit of a risk, but we had a really good team. I pulled in a lot of advisors. So Chuck Mansky, Ken Wolpen, and a whole bunch of people, macroeconomists, monetary. We all brought them in and we got advice from them. And then, as I said, we had like six years of experimentation. Mm. Uh, and and the team here also was very strong. We had Basset Zafar was here at that time. Uh, you know, Olivier Armantier and Georgia Topa, Gizem Kosar, and now Jason Somerville. So we have really good people. Uh, mm -hmm. And the group has been, you know, fairly stable over time. That also helps. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it came out, it came out, you know, it, it, it's, it's better than I ever expected, I guess. Well, what's one of the more exciting findings that you feel like, you know, this whole thing is paid off for you because of you know, this one, a couple of things that you found that you just were not expecting or couldn't have known about? Um, well, I still feel like we're still early in, in, in discovering how yeah. people form expectations, uh, how they use them in making decisions, mm. um, and how they matter, like even in the household context, right? I mean, people have might have different expectations and they still come to a decision. Yeah. Um I still feel like, you know, expectations are underappreciated, even in work on causal inference. Uh -huh. If you think about causal inference, we, we, if you look at most of the methods, they want to rule out anticipation effects. Yeah. And anticipation effects, I find actually very interesting mm -hmm. because in many cases, it is not the case that things, think, you know, were totally unexpected. Right. Sure. I mean, you know, it, people might have given it a low probability, yeah, uh, but in many cases, you know, these things are announced in advance, and mm. so then, if you if you then check in your data and you don't find an anticipation effect, you don't find any evidence of that, then you know you could say, okay, see, I mean, it's we can ignore the issue and we just uh, do our different diff or whatever we want to do. Yeah, but I, I I feel like we're missing something there because that actually tells us something. If there was yeah. no anticipatory be behavior. Right. And even though we have a good idea that people, you know, that this information was out there already, it was announced. Yeah. That actually tells us a lot. Yeah. But 
we have an identification problem because it could be that people didn't know about it or they knew about it, but they didn't find it, you know, optimal to react on that, to do, to, to change their behavior. Now that is really telling us a lot about that program. And, you know, because if people are forward looking and they can plan in advance as intertemporal substitution, you would expect some behavior beforehand. So I feel like there's a lot of information there that we are not exploring and but really to solve that, you need expectations data. Wow. wow. And so What's that's the what this data set. What is this data set you've collected? So this is a survey of consumer expectations. So we are we are tracking inflation expectations at the one, three and five year horizons. And we don't just ask for a point forecast. We ask for the whole distribution. Uh. And you think like, can people do that? Yeah, they can do that. I mean, we've oh. done it many different ways and it it's really, uh, you know, and now other central banks, there are a lot of other surveys now doing the same thing. Uh, but but so we ask about inflation, but also about house prices and earnings growth, um, you know, household income. We ask about many, many different things. Mm. And then we also run experiments. We run information experiments. We do hypothetical scenario, like kind of strategic questions that really get at causal patterns. Mm. Uh, so then you can see like, um, if somebody is an information shock, how do people use it? How mm -hmm. do they update their expectations and do they also affect their beliefs? So we had one of the first experiments in that. Uh, and it's also a way to validate the subjective expectations data that you collect from a survey, because some people say, oh, you, you can't take that data seriously. You know, people don't really spend much time. They just give you an answer. Well, we designed this experiment where there was like up to $800 on the table and people had to make decisions and investing in two, in, you know, they had to choose between investments. One was, in, was indexed to inflation, the other one was not. Mm -hmm. And we designed it so that depending on what they thought was gonna to happen to in, inflation, they would choose one alternative over the other and at some point they would switch mm -hmm. because we were increasing the amount in one of the two investments. Mm -hmm. and. To our surprise, I mean, when you look at the actual behavior, it lined up very well with the inflation expectations they've reported at the beginning of the survey, when they had no idea that this question was coming later on, that this experiment was coming. Mm. And so that was kind of the first evidence that we had that you know people really act on their inflation expectations. And since then, we found it, you know, we found inflation, you know, all, the, all kinds of expectations to predict actual future outcomes. And so there's a lot of information content there. And, you know, and then we found it useful in modeling. And, and it's so we, there's a whole research agenda we've been working on. And to me personally, this is, I think, one of the big areas right now. And maybe, you know, for the next 10, 20 years sorry, mm. in economics, uh, because it's, we all make assumptions in our models that people are forward looking and we make these you know, rational expectations. Now we, of course, start deviating. We, we, you know, that we were more aware of behavioral economics evidence on, on this. But subjective expectations data, I think, are extremely valuable and it's going to lead to a lot more research. And so I'm, I'm very excited about this cool. and I've been for a long time. Yeah. And, wow. yeah so. huh. That's fantastic. Well, I know that you you have uh, I've gone over what I promised you that I would use, but um, I uh, 
uh, I guess the only thing I would, I would just say is, you know, uh, what, what about if you were sort of to describe to someone out there who's thinking about leaving academia to mm -hmm. go into government, either at the point of the job search or maybe someone that was senior, what would you say are the trade-offs? What have you gained in your life and what do you think that you did not get to carry with you? Um, I don't, you know, my, my approach is that, you know, when opportunities arise, you know, sometimes you take a chance yeah. and it's worked out very well. I feel like, you know, I learned a lot more, uh, but you know, I, I, I think both experiences are very useful and for people who are even, you know, in labor economics or applied micro, I think the Fed is a really good place to start actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Bassett Zafar started there. Uh, Sandy Black started here. Uh, you know, there, there, it, it's then there are many examples, and uh, some stay in 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 the in the reserve system. Others go to universities, become professors, and 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 the other way around, like me. Uh, so it it is still very academic the environment in most uh, of the Federal Reserve banks, and so you can still do a lot of the things you're interested in. But you do it in an environment where it's more policy relevant. Your work gets more attention. Yeah. Like the media picks it up very quickly. Yeah. And you just feel like you're part, you know, you're closer to, um, you know, the real policy making. And, uh, and, and for most, for many of us, that's kind of, you know, ultimately what matters most. Like it's citations is great. Right. But where actually people use your work, you right. know. And it's discussed at the highest level. That's that's a whole different thing. It's a whole different deal. Wow. Well, it's been really nice to to hear this story. I really appreciate you giving me your time to to talk to me. It's um, it's great to meet and great to hear all this. Well, thanks, Scott. It was great talking to you.